Hello, and welcome back to Social Justice Tours Pandemic Podcast, where we're interviewing people about issues they're passionate about in relation to this coronavirus pandemic. So on today, we have Cindy Cooper, who runs Social Justice Tours Reproductive Freedom Walking Tour in Lower Manhattan. And we'll be talking a bit about some of the issues that the coronavirus brings up in relation to the work that she does. So great to have you on, Cindy. And the place I'd love to start is just so that we're on the same page. Maybe you can define reproductive freedom for us. That's a great place to start. And it's a place where I start the walking tour as well, because people often think of it as just being about abortion and contraception. But reproductive freedom is actually much more. It encompasses many areas of reproductive health and reproductive rights, reproductive justice, which connects to a lot of other issues. And then one colander that holds them all is reproductive freedom. So I would define reproductive freedom as the ability to decide whether or not to bear a child and to raise that child in a safe and healthy environment and to live in that safe and healthy environment free of racism, homophobia, with economic security and environmental stability and respecting our LGBTQI rights, uh, respecting our voting rights and our ability to incorporate immigrants into our lives. So it's a big topic because reproductive freedom is part of every person's life. And one of the things that the pandemic shows, it never goes away. I mean, you, you, you can have disease, you can have war, you can have peace and, and love. We still have reproductive health rights and justice needs. So within your definition, there's a lot of intersectionality, and I'm, and I'm looking forward to kind of d- jumping into some of those different intersectional issues. The path that you were starting to go down that uh, I'll uh, help facilitate you down a little bit is talking about what's going on with coronavirus with reproductive freedom. Well, then one of the very disturbing things that's happened with abortion rights is, of course, the anti-abortion crowd is using the pandemic to try and further their efforts to restrict abortion and to make it illegal. One of the ways this has been happening is by executive orders in states where there are anti-abortion governors that are declaring abortion as a non-essential service and therefore should be closed during the time period of pandemic. And abortion is not a non-essential service. It's an essential service and it's time-based. People need to get an abortion at the time that they are pregnant. If they get it at an earlier time period, it prevents more difficulties. So this has been challenged in, it's it's now about 10 or 12 states that have tried to do this. It's been challenged in every state. Abortion rights advocates have gone to court to try and stop it and have been successful in most states except for in Texas. So in Texas, it's just been like a seesaw, one court said Texas couldn't ban abortions, another said they could. And where it has ended up right now is they can ban surgical abortions or procedure abortions, are sometimes called, and that would be when someone goes into a clinic, but they can't ban abortion pills. In the time period, though, while these bans have been going on, pregnant people have had to travel hundreds of miles to get to a state that they think is safe. Sometimes they get to that state, and that state has enacted a ban, even if it's only lasting for 
a couple days, they have to find another state. And it just created this crazy chaos and uncertainty and confusion. And like I said, it kind of heightens or indicates the extent to which anti-abortion advocates have been willing to take advantage of what is a horrible situation for everyone in the pandemic to try and advance their cause of making abortion impossible or difficult for for people to get. I think one thing comes to mind, too, is that limiting abortion rights doesn't make it go away. It just makes it more dangerous or more challenging or et cetera for the folks needing needing to access that service. So One of the things that came up for me when the president was suggesting that people use cleaning products, Lysol and so on, is that is something that people used to try and use to mm. self-abort. Mm. They used to use Lysol or other products like that that were extremely dangerous and could kill them. So the extent to which women will go to secure an abortion if they need one is maybe parallel to the fear and danger that people feel about the coronavirus, mm. where they're desperate to find something to stop it, to protect themselves, to feel safe in their body. The idea that people are being treated as expendable in some way is something that I think that the reproductive rights community is familiar with, you know, back through history where women's So I wanted to bring in some of the intersectionality of this moment that you kind of alluded to in the beginning. Can you talk a bit about how the coronavirus is hitting different communities through the lens of reproductive freedom, uh, specifically thinking about immigrants in detention centers or folks in prisons or you know some, some of the other populations that are more vulnerable? where people are being held with no criminal charge. The coronavirus has not been adequately treated. People are not being getting the protective equipment that they need, the masks. They're not being tested. They're being exposed to people who have the virus constantly. And so this is exacerbated for women who are pregnant. And the effect of the coronavirus, like many things that are unknown, the effect of the coronavirus on pregnant people is suspicious. In other words, there are a number of cases in which pregnant people whose bodies are already under stress with the pregnancy have been affected seriously by coronavirus and even where infants have been born with the virus. So the fact that there aren't more extensive protections for people in in the prisons and in the immigration detention centers or the people who are being sent back across the border and left to sleep in tents is kind of appalling. I mean, we already knew that children were being held and they were not being held in a safe and healthy environment, which is one of the keys to reproductive freedom, is raising children in a safe and healthy environment. They were being held in and still continue to be held in detention centers and foster homes where they're not getting the care that they need and they're being separated from their parents. So. The coronavirus is exposing, at an even deeper level, some of the reproductive health issues that that people have been concerned about for quite some time and showing just how vicious they are. And are there other issues that you feel are being exposed right now in addition to immigration or the injustices in the prisons? Well, I think one of the big 
maternal mortality. And in the United States, maternal mortality has been growing at steep upcline. If you looked at a chart, it's just a line going straight up, whereas it's declined in every other developed country. Mm. And this is shocking. This is something that should not be happening. And when I say maternal mortality, it's pregnant women and mothers who die in the process or shortly after giving birth. This is something we think of as happening in the last century. And in fact, on, on my walking tour, we stop at the first emergency hospital in Manhattan, dating to about 1890. And when women were brought there, that's what it was for. It was for conditions related to their pregnancy that had become extremely dangerous to them. Maternal mortality is also becoming a problem because of the pandemic, so that women are being exposed in the hospital to dangerous conditions. Some women are coming in who may have be carrying the virus, and it's worsened by delivering, you know, the stress that's put on their body. And so there are a number of cases that expose that. The other thing to know about maternal mortality is that it's the African-American community that is the most deeply involved, four times the rate of other communities in the United States, um, and also the indigenous community is similarly affected. And that, of course, with the pandemic, we're seeing that the African-American community is bearing a much deeper brunt of the virus than other communities. Mm. With the maternal mortality in the African-American community, it pretty much comes down to medical racism where the complaints of African-American people about their health issues are dismissed. They're pushed aside and they're told it's not as serious a problem that it is. I mean, several studies have shown it affects African-American women of wealth, of middle-class status, and of poverty. They're all affected by this. And Serena Williams is one of the prime examples. She almost died after giving birth, but took extraordinary steps to self-advocate on her on her own behalf and demanded that they get a certain kind of treatment for her, which she was familiar with because she followed her own health care. Had she not done that, she probably would have died after giving birth. So I think you see this medical racism that has been a part of the community and is starting to be exposed through women's health care in particular is now becoming more apparent in the coronavirus. And one other thing I want to say about racism and reproductive health is we've known for many years the, the African-American community and Puerto Rican community have suffered more deeply in reproductive health. They, men were used for syphilis experiments. The contraceptive pills, when they were first being developed, were tested in Puerto Rico. And at that point, they were much more dangerous than they were now. So this history of race and reproductive health goes back a long way. So I, I want to finish talking about the national context and then pivot to New York. So you talked about on the national context, states were rolling back reproductive freedoms throughout the country. But I, I want to move to some of the other contexts happening on the national scene between the Supreme Court and maybe some positives that are coming from this. Right. So, you know, there have been for many, many years, since about 2000 or 1998, states have passed hundreds and thousands of regulations to prevent abortion 
clinics from operating at, at a level that they need or making really insidious rules like the width of the hallway oh my gosh. or how the height of the grass outside, as well as ones that demand that people are read a script that tells them they are abortion is terrible when it's not or that it might cause breast cancer, which it doesn't. It's completely untrue. Mm. And the doctors are required to read this script to people. People have to wait sometimes 72 hours before they can get their abortions, just making it all more cost. And the latest group of abortion restrictions required a doctor, many of the doctors fly in, required a doctor to have local hospital privileges, which sounds benign, but it's not because the hospitals won't give privileges to doctors who don't have more than 10 cases. Abortion is so safe, it's safer than having a tooth removed, that abortion doctors don't have 10 cases that go to hospitals. Mm. So they can't get admitting privileges. This law was already overturned by the Supreme Court two years ago. Now there is a, they took another case, and that's always a bad sign. Mm. <laughs> That was heard in March, and the decision should be out this summer. There's nothing that has changed about the circumstances. The first case was from Texas. This one's from Louisiana. Same law. There's nothing that's changed. The only thing that has changed is the composition of the court. We have two uh, suspected anti-abortion judges that were have been appointed in the last three years, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and there's every indication that they're willing to overturn Roe versus Wade mm. and to also make it more difficult to bring cases to court. So if Roe versus Wade is overturned, there are a couple things that could happen, but one, and most people think it's most likely, is that the abortion laws will be turned back to the states so that it will not be a constitutional right. It will be a right in every state. So abortion, you could get an abortion in one state, but you can't get one in another. That's where we get back to New York because last year New York passed a law to make New York a very safe state for abortion access. So the laws were updated in about a year ago. Certain states will be safer to get abortions, but what it means is in a lot of these other states, maybe about 25, will be immediately make abortion access illegal or next to impossible. And people in those states will need to come to New York. New York has already experienced that and has a program here, for example, called Haven, where people host people seeking abortions who come from out of state where they can't get an abortion in their state or where it's become too onerous. And so people have been hosting patients in their homes. And also there are funds, and New York has a very strong one called the New York Abortion Access Fund. And part of the, the social justice tour's income has gone to the New York mm-hmm. Abortion Access Fund it's true. to help people soften some of the expenses because if people are both for the abortion, which can be quite expensive, and traveling, and having to take time off work, you, you can mount up quite a bill. So New York has always been at the forefront of abortion access. It's also been the victim of some really cruel anti-abortion shenanigans. You talked about some of the negative challenges that we're facing in this time, but 
I know there are also some positive signs coming out of this, and I was hoping you could talk a bit about that. Well, because of the pandemic, people, there have been efforts to expand telemedicine. Telemedicine is really important in reproductive health care for a couple of reasons. One is contraceptive pills in the United States have to be accessed by prescription. And if you can't get to your doctor and get the prescription, then you can't get the pills, which you have to get in a pharmacy. So telemedicine has been able to breach that gap, or could breach that gap. The other thing that could become more accessible are abortion pills. Right now, abortion pills are accessed only through a clinic, and you can't even get them directly from a pharmacy. So around the world, though, organizations have been able to deliver them directly to women or people who need them through internet services. So the hope is that telemedicine programs will be able to make those abortion pills available to women in new parts of the country, and there's a pilot project that's working with 12 states to make sure that they can get to people safely, to make sure that they have used them appropriately and that they're experiencing the response that they should. Mm. So... To now come back to New York and the pandemic, right when this was first all happening, I was seeing a lot of petitions about the ways in which having to go give birth at a hospital where hospitals are being completely overwhelmed by COVID patients is putting the pregnant women at risk and there wasn't enough PPE for the pregnant women and you know and, and all these sorts of concerns. And I saw many advocates and activists placing calls on the governor and the mayor as they were rushing to figure out how they can increase capacity in beds, having a separate unit for only a maternity ward. And from what I saw, neither the mayor nor the governor particularly jumped on ideas like that in in this moment. It seemed to be a lower priority for them. So I was wondering if you could, Abe, just talk about what you think of that idea and then B, why it seemed to be lower down on their priority list. I can answer about what it's lower on their priority list. You know, pregnant people have been put in an extremely difficult situation. Obviously, they're already stressed. Their bodies are stressed. Uh, Many have turned to home birth or doulas, people that can help them deliver without going to a hospital where they're exposed to potentially or, or worried that they'll be exposed to coronavirus. And the other thing that has happened is the hospitals and their effort to protect patients have restricted, and this is around the country, have restricted the delivery rooms to only the patient as opposed to patient and a partner. Mm. So that makes it all the more frightening for someone who's delivering, and particularly if there's someone who's got a health care concern that might spike. I mean, one of the protections for people who have health care concerns is to have a birth doula with them in the hospital who can help them articulate if they are experiencing certain kinds of issues. So what the, what the governor did do in New York is pass an executive order that allows somebody to be in the delivery room with a person giving birth so that they don't have to be alone, even during the pandemic. But again, it's exposing how vulnerable people are when a health crisis emerges. You know, it's, it's impossible for women, even on extended public programs like Medicaid, to get 
health care for more than two months beyond her pregnancy, and mm. that's when a lot of people experience difficult health issues. I applaud New York for making that little bit of accessibility, but it's pointing to all the other issues that to focus our attention on during and after mm. this pandemic to improve the health care for, for people who are pregnant. Mm. I want to end on somewhat of a a hopeful note in in thinking about the future. You've said that what this pandemic is doing is just exposing issues that were already there. You discussed the ways in which African-American community maternal mortality rates are four times higher than those of other communities. The way that maternity, maternal deaths are spiking, whereas everywhere else they're declining. The issues with immigration and our detention and ICE system and the appalling effects that that has on children and those communities. And and I think you've done a really nice job outlining what the challenges are that we have already been facing and the ways in which the the virus exacerbates it. So I'd love you to end with just looking forward. I think this is really a juncture. Anything about what changes can occur to get us to a more just version of truly accessing reproductive freedom and, and what it would take for those changes to be birthed out of this crisis? New York has always been a center of activism on reproductive health and rights. And whatever comes up, whether it comes from the church or it comes from the state, whether it comes from right-wing ideologues who are willing to harass people or even kill them in the name of their anti-abortion cause, people in New York have fought back. And that's where, that's where New York has this incredible history, whether it's the people who fought for access to birth control, people who set up the original Planned Parenthood, the people who brought early cases to make abortion legal. And, you know, one of the places we stop on the walking tour is Washington Square Methodist Church, where 50 years ago, New Yorkers held the first abortion speak out. And that came about because the state legislature had anti-abortion laws and the state legislature had refused to liberalize them. They held a hearing where they had 14 people testify, 13 were men, the one woman was a nun. So activists went there, they laid on the floor, they went into offices of legislators, they still were not able to make headway. So they came back to New York, and they said, well, we're going to hold our own legislative hearings. <laughs> and they held the first abortion speak out, which was a whole new way of people talking about personal issues in the public mm. that influenced, I would say, every other social justice cause after that. Even. And so people stood up in Washington Square Church and told their stories, their personal stories of being denied abortion, of being terrorized by a pregnancy that was in danger. And that changed the trajectory of how movements go forward. So what I think is New Yorkers will be at the forefront of advocating for reproductive freedom, whatever form that takes. Mm. And, you know, one of the people who was involved in, in um, advocating for abortion rights in New York was Flo Kennedy. She was a radical African-American lawyer. And one of the things she always said was, you know, don't agonize, organize. <laughs> to the extent that 
we are now dealing in this country with a lot of right-wing forces that are intent on restricting freedoms. The abortion rights community, the reproductive freedom community has dealt with them, has been dealing with them. And know that you have to keep at it. And freedom is not guaranteed. We have to fight for it. And we have to continue to fight for it and not let it be taken away. So that's such a wonderful place to end and, and so beautifully articulated. I'd say if I had to sum up Social Justice Tour's mission statement, it would be educating for action. And I think that that's exactly what, what just happened. So I, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast hopefully we'll have you on again and and thank you for your ideas and inspiration thank you dan yeah